very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Lynn Alden, uh, to talk about her latest book, uh, Broken Money, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. Lynn, thanks so much for, for coming on. I appreciate you having me back. And I apologize to the audience for my audio quality. I'm on travel right now, so I don't have a normal headset. Um, but we're going to do our best to make this work. I think it's, it's the content that matters, and that's what I'm really excited about. We're going to talk about uh, the book in a minute, a lot of which touches on uh, my, my first question. But first, I got to ask you, the bond market is melting down. Uh, the long end of the treasury market, peak to trough, is now down more in percentage terms than stocks were during the great financial crisis. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? What, what are the cause of the bond market meltdown? Let's call it what it is. And how do you think this ends? So I think we're seeing some degree of what would have happened in the 1940s if there wasn't yield curve control, if there was basically an attempt to raise rates into that sort of fiscal situation. Um, so far, that's been kind of the one key difference between this period and that period is that period, they were kind of ironically quick to acknowledge that they had a fiscal problem. Whereas here, um, I think we're still trying to operate under the assumption that we don't have one and institutions are trying to retain their credibility. And I think that's partially due to the fact that they don't have as good of a catalyst or good of an example now. Um, you know, during the war, you can justify almost anything. Whereas a lot of what we're seeing now is built up over decades of, um, you know, entitlement spending, uh, military spending, obviously the recent COVID stimulus, that kind of stuff like that. And so we're in an environment where monetary authorities are trying to tighten and clamp down on inflation, but you have these governments with very large debt to GDP ratios, very large um, deficits in many cases, especially the United States. Uh, and those are very hard to support when you don't have um, central bank support. And so I think we're kind of entering a, you know, back in autumn of 2022, we entered a kind of a spike for a period of time. That's when the UK guilt market broke. Um, we also saw that the U.S. Treasury market was getting wobbly, um, the, the yen was getting in trouble, and we're kind of seeing a lot of those similar things pop up uh, again. And so I think we're going to have to watch in the coming weeks. This is, this is kind of the phase where it goes from an orderly um, uh, decline, uh, which was happening in the recent weeks and months, and now we're potentially looking at a little bit more disorder and uh, intervention in the market. So um, I think the long-term outcome here like the end game is basically some degree of yield management while you have inflation still being a either recurring problem or an ongoing problem. Um, but I think that the path dependent to get there is obviously challenging. And that's kind of what we're going through now. All right. So the sell-off was orderly. It's becoming a little disorderly now as we record uh, in early October. Are 10-year yields where they are, about 4.8%. Can 10-year yields stay there uh, and not threaten financial stability, whether to banks, to the economy, to, to borrowers? Uh, can they go higher? Can, can they go to 5.5%, 6%, and everything will be fine? Or is go, we're going to approach a point where there's a risk that's, that something breaks? So two things matter, both the levels and the speed at which those levels change. Because if things change gradually, it gives entities time to adjust. And that's also, I think, why we're seeing things break at a different level here than they broke at the kind of a, a similar time of year last year, is that, you know, balance sheets have had another year of seeing this coming or, you know, capital accumulation, things like that. So it's both the level and the speed. It's also going to depend on what's happening with, for example, you can have higher rates if the Fed is not also selling their supply into the market. So it's not just necessarily a rate problem. It's not necessarily that entities are looking at this and saying these yields aren't acceptable. 
pitch they're saying these yields are acceptable we, we don't we don't have the balance sheet capacity to absorb this rate of new supply um and so it's it's less about race themselves although that's a big factor it's about the speed of change and it's about the overall supply and demand characteristics and then these liquidity things can trickle through into other markets so for example if it gets disorderly you know part of why it's Part of an indicator that it's been orderly so far is it's not really affected the large cap equity market. Um, but we start to see, and, and I think we're seeing potentially early signs of disruption in the equity market, um, that's when the disorders are taking over because you can get forced selling of other assets. So I think we, th these are at levels where we should look around and start wondering which um, kind of smaller banks might be running into trouble again. Um, we should look around and see you know, uh, commercial real estate exposures, all those kind of recurring trouble spots, these levels are now a lot more threatening to them than they were, you know, even several months ago. And do you think that this will cause the Federal Reserve to intervene in a short or midterm? Because we have all of these looming issues that you talked about, commercial commercial uh, real estate, banking, many, many other things. But, you know, the, the JOLTS job openings came out today and there are still, I think, 9 million jobs open. And that's what the Federal Reserve uh, cares about, right? Unemployment and uh, the job market. So I think a key thing to watch is the move index in overall treasury liquidity conditions, because the one market that they won't let break is the treasury market, for very, at least for very long, uh, or anything adjacent to it. So for example, back in 2019, it was the repo rate uh, that broke, but that was a funding source for treasury. So it was like an adjacent market to treasuries. Mm -hmm. um, if you should see um, either the treasury market or something very adjacent to a break, I think that's where you would have some degree of uh, Federal Reserve intervention. And part of why they intervened back in March of this year was that, you know, one of the release valves when these banks have troubles is they would have to potentially sell a lot of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities in the market and cause that type of liquidity problem. Um, and so both in, so in September of last year, when you started to have like sovereign bond issues, it was the treasury that, that more or less intervened. Um, and then when you had the banking crisis early this year, you had the Federal Reserve intervene. And, you know, I don't think they're going to intervene based on the stock market going down, you know, 5, 10, 20 percent. That's not something they're going to look at. They're not really going to intervene if you have one rogue bank failure or large commercial property, pro you know, have a problem. They're going to intervene, um, I think, only when you get to the point where the key markets that they really can't let break, like the treasury market, should have a problem. So I think that's the thing to watch. And until you see signs of that um, getting disorderly, you should assume that they're watching this, that they're looking at potentially pausing, they're looking at changing their language, but that there's no real reason for them to directly intervene, especially because they already have facilities out there yep. that can be used to take some of the edge off. So I guess there's sort of three ways the Federal Reserve could adjust policy. There is doing stopping quantitative tightening and or doing quantitative easing. So actually buying securities or stopping letting them roll off. Uh, that's door number one. Door number two is stop raising interest rates or even cut interest rates. And door number three is have a special facility such as the bank term funding program or a repo facility, essentially a lending facility. The Federal Reserve is um, uh, lending against security. It is not themselves buying it. And, you know, central banks have been doing that for, for hundreds of years, uh, whereas quantitative easing is a pretty new policy. Um, do you have a view on, you know, if the Federal Reserve does intervene to help and assist the Treasury market functioning? Uh, which of those three doors the Federal Reserve would would go down? Because, and also, do you have a do you have a view on whether the Federal Reserve does something, and then there are folks who call it quantitative easing, but then you know the the, the strict uh, people who say no, quantitative easing has a, def de de a strict definition. This is not QE. 
So if you look back in 2019 during the repo spike, um, they had to stop decreasing their balance sheet and start increasing their balance sheet. And they didn't want to call it QE because they were focusing entirely on T-bills. And back then, in many cases, you had the opposite situation as now in the sense that there was too much T-bill oversupply. Um, and so it was, it was a similar fiscal issue at the end of the day, in my opinion, but it was a different part of the curve. Today, the end, yeah. there's, there's no um, problem at all of T-bill oversupply, and it's really about coupon oversupply. So it would be harder for them to expand their balance sheet by buying coupons and say it's not QA. Uh, this time around, they wouldn't be able to use the same argument as last time. Um, the other way that they can frame it is to say that they're doing it finan for financial stability purposes rather than uh, stimulus. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same functionality, right? It's it's a pro-liquidity movement in the market at a time when they're trying to hold their credibility on inflation. Um, so I think that they'd be reticent to use that tool, although I do think that they that, that balance sheet tool is, is probably something they're going to come to before they come to changing rate levels, because they can hold rates where they are as long as they're willing to provide liquidity if the treasury market becomes illiquid. Um, we could also see the expansion of other temporary programs, um, like we saw before. And I agree that they're not quite the same thing as QE. Now, they're pro when they happen, they're pro-liquidity in a similar way as QE. Um, they have similar effects as QE, but because those uh, those exchanges are inherently temporary. You know, they're not permanently acquiring the security. Mm -hmm. There is a fundamental difference between them and the QA. So I think what we have to look for is potentially signs that the Fed would, you know, argue that maybe in addition to holding rates uh, flat, they're going to hold their balance sheet flat for a period of time. You could see that type of, you know, kind of like stepwise intervention where they're not they're not going all out on something expansionary, um, but they're maybe no longer contributing to the issue. And of course, the other lever that uh, they can pull, not the Fed, but the Treasury, is that they could go back to short term, more short term issuance. Um, so they still have a very large reverse repo facility of available liquidity that can soak up T-bill issuance. And so right now, T-bills are not the source of the problem. The source of the problem is these longer dated uh, Treasuries, which so far there's not been a lot of appetite for. Um, and then in addition, there's there's agreements you can have that are more subtle in the sense that you can have foreign entities help you intervene, right? You can basically provide, um, ex, you know, liquidity provisions or deals, backdoor deals with other central banks who can then help you with, with the sovereign bond market liquidity, uh, at least for a period of time. So there are a number of either direct tools or less direct tools. And I think that they're they would likely be more reticent to use some of the direct tools, especially because that you know that that threatens their core credibility. But I think that's the the long term end game is they get stuck in these situations where they're unable to reduce their balance sheet. Inflation uh, is doing you know whether or not inflation is kind of stabilizing or whether or not we get another spike of it that the balance sheet largely becomes outside of their control if they want to have functioning sovereign bond markets. Thanks. What's your view now on inflation and the business cycle? Do you, what do you think the odds are that what, you know, the U.S. is going to enter a recession? Because presumably, if the U.S. enters a recession, inflation will go down or, or moderate, and it's a more favorable environment for bonds. Or do you have the view that whether we go into a recession or not, the U.S. Treasury has to issue you know whatever eight hundred billion of, of securities, and it's not going to be a good environment for bonds no matter what? So I think that when you have super oversold levels, uh, bonds potentially become tradable if you have views like that. Um, but in general, I think that what makes this 
So we've already seen that this cycle is very different than the average cycle for the bond market. Normally, for example, when you have PMIs rolling over, other signs of economic deceleration, even when they're still positive, when they're rolling over, normally you start to get bonds doing quite well. But because the first part of the cycle was stagflationary, so you had decelerating economic period, but rising inflation. So that was bad for the bond market. And then somewhat surprisingly, even when inflation started to roll over and stabilize, and you still had a low period of economic growth, you still had uh, bad performance in bond yields, in large part because they were, for a while, they were still below the inflation rate. So they still had a time to go up. And then now I think it's just largely a supply-demand problem. There's just so much supply coming to market, and that's contributed to by the fact that when you have a strong dollar, foreign sector is not really buying treasuries. You have the Fed reducing their holdings by letting them mature. Um, you don't see banks buying them anymore. So you had years and years and years of bank holdings of treasuries rising, and now that's that's rolling over. And so really the only source to absorb all of this is domestic non-bank balance sheets, um, which has trouble with the amount of uh, absorption that we're having. So even if I, I think there will be times where bonds are a tradable um, you know, on the long side, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a market that I'm quick to get into because I think that there are more interesting risk reward opportunities elsewhere. Um, and, you know, I think there's two periods to be instructive on this. One is, again, my big theme of the 1940s, right? You can have a, a you know, kind of um, economic crisis. It's not disinflationary if you have very, very large fiscal intervention. So that's number one. Number two is if you look at emerging markets, a lot of times their recessions are not deflationary, not disinflationary. And that's because their inputs are problematic. So their energy imports or other things like that. Now, they're obviously more prone to have that issue because they have dollar-dominated debt. And so they they run into issues at a much lower threshold. But I think a big theme of this decade is that, you know, stagflation is in many aspects, like what we is normally an emerging market type of issue. Um, And so when you have these unusual fiscal environments, that's where you get kind of emerging market characteristics in developed markets, maybe to a less extreme level, but still kind of in terms of flavor, in terms of direction, that kind of situation. So um, I don't think that bonds are going to behave and they, they've already not behaved the way you normally expect in recessionary conditions. Now, as it relates to the probability of recession, largely it will depend on how much the Fed keeps pushing uh, with rates and, and balance sheet reduction where they are. But I'm thinking of this less in terms of broad-based recession and more just thinking very specifically industry by industry. And you actually see that in emerging market recessions as well. If you have a, a country with a currency crisis, for example, you'll see many parts of that economy suffering. But for example, companies working in the export sector are often doing quite well in that environment. Um, and so you have very kind of industry-specific um, differences that grow larger than normal. And so in an environment where you have such a large fiscal deficit, but then you have such um, aggressive tightening attempts by the central bank, that becomes very sector-specific and balance sheet specific. So anything that has shorter duration debt, a need for refinancing, um, overall less creditworthiness is likely still going to be in a world of hurt for a while. Um, Whereas either if you're in a strong balance sheet condition, um, so you've locked in low long-term fixed rate debt, and you have low overall net debt. Some of these companies, for example, the higher the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the more stimulatory it is for them because mm-hmm. their cash equivalents are rising in yield and their their debt's fixed. Um, and then 
you know, if you're on the right side of the deficit. So for example, if you are receiving retirement benefits and all that's going up with inflation, and if you're a healthcare company receiving all those very large Medicare payments, if you're an upper middle class or wealthy retiree with a lot of money markets, cash equivalents, and you look at this ballooning interest expense, that's going to someone, that's going to certain entities, either certain financial companies, certain individuals, and their spending is still likely to be relatively intact. So I, I think another period to look at is when you look at the dot-com bubble recession, um, so the early 2000s recession, that was by most metrics a fairly mild recession in terms of like how high unemployment rate went or how um, problematic real GDP was, even though you had very significant sell-offs in the equity market. Um, I kind of view this as that type of recession, not necessarily in terms of the equity market, but in terms of you know, in, in that recession, you did not see oil prices crash. Uh, you didn't see a super big spike in unemployment. I think we could see similar types of situations like that, where it's a weak environment. It's certainly recessionary for some industries, um, but I'd be very industry specific rather than just thinking in terms of are most things going to be good or most things going to be bad. I think the the difference in industries is is going to be larger in this cycle. What do you think are uh, the, the uh, most exposed industry, uh, whether it's, you know, the um, a sector specific one, the way that they classify it in, in stocks or a, a subsector that, that you, you pick? Like, what do you think is the uh, least well positioned for what is to come as well as uh, what do you think is the best? So I think it's not a surprising answer, but commercial real estate continues to be under pressure. Now, that doesn't mean that it necessarily impacts everyone in the chain. So for example, if you gave a very low loan to value loan to a commercial real estate company, you could still come out um, intact or with like a mild haircut compared to the, you know, the entity that actually owns the equity in that commercial real estate. So, you know, depending on the severity, it doesn't necessarily blow through everything. Um, but that that's obviously an industry that's still pressured. Um, so I think that's probably the worst. Um, the, the areas that I'm still constructive on are um, energy companies in general. Um, and the way that I look at them is that the upside versus downside ratio, in my opinion, is very strong. I think that you know if we do have a bad enough recession to cause some degree of um, oil demand uh, to go down, these entities are still reasonably priced. Um, they can make money in either current oil prices or even if oil prices go down 10 or $20, they're still making money. They're still at reasonable valuations. Most of them, especially the larger ones, have good balance sheets. So they're in many cases in a situation where, you know, they've issued a ton of low rate fixed uh, long duration debt and they have a, a decent amount of cash. They've used a lot of the recent profits to build their cash position um, to let existing debt mature off their balance sheet um, and not, you know, issue as much new debt to cover that. So in many cases, they've really improved their balance sheets. Um, and then when we eventually get, you know, either another liquidity pulse or another PMI reacceleration, some sort of next growth cycle. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen next year or the year after. Um, but when we look deeper in the 2020s, I think they still have a considerable amount of upside. And so I'm still pretty constructive overall on that market. And then aside from that, I'm sticking to relatively conservative things, T-bills, cash equivalents, healthcare companies. Um, and then, I, don't, I mean, obviously another volatile play I like is Bitcoin. Um, but of course, even in this sort of weird environment, I don't know what it's going to do for a three-month period. Right. And what about large cap tech? And when I ask you about large cap tech, I really am asking you about the S&P 500 since so much of, of the S&P 500 are those, those companies. So I 
look at them company by company more so than as a group, as as most analysts seem to like them. And so some of them seem overvalued. Other ones seem uh, fairly valued. For me, somewhat the surprising thing this year was how they held up in the face of these higher yields. It's not necessarily that I expect their fundamental performance to deteriorate too much. It's that given, you know, in many cases, they have fairly sluggish performance. I mean, Apple's, you know, they're doing well, but they're not exactly, their growth is not exactly stellar at the moment. But the, the multiples that investors are willing to pay for some of those companies is surprising to me. So I kind of put them in the category where I think a lot of them are just going to either trend sideways for a while in a volatile choppy range. Like I don't think the four, the say a five-year return um, expectations should be good, especially when compared to something like, like T-bills or two-year treasury notes or something like that. So if you, if you look at them either in a real basis or on what you can get with a available um, low duration types of cash equivalents, um, their, their forward expectations don't look good to me. Um, but clearly the, you know, the past six months, they've, they would have risen. They've risen further than I would have guessed. Um, and that's largely, in my view, kind of a sentiment thing that basically these sort of weird signals, investors can interpret them in various ways. They can say, well, bonds are selling off because the economy is reaccelerating, which might not necessarily be the case because you could just have bonds selling off due to supply demand problem, even as the economy is, you know, maybe not falling off a cliff and maybe not reaccelerating either. It could just be in this kind of stagnant malaise and you have a a a bond specific problem. I think eventually if this if these bonds kind of stay at the levels that they are or get worse, I think this increasingly puts some of those valuations at risk, which again is not to say that those equities are going to fall off a cliff, but it means that the, the forward, you know, real returns of those, I think in many cases are going to be undesirable. Yeah, so, you know, I, I know you and your analysis, you're not someone who you have a target on the S&P 500 or say we're shorting the S&P 500, you go company by company. But when I hear you say that a lot of the large cap tech names you think their five-year forward return could be maybe lower than a, a T-bill. A T-bill now is 5.5%. So over five years, that's 25%. So you're saying you think there's a you know somewhat of a chance that uh, large cap tech stocks do are are less are, are uh, perform less well than 25%. For you, Lynn, that sounds somewhat bearish for the index. Yeah, and I think even if they were to outperform mildly um, on a risk or volatility adjusted basis, it would that would still be like a a, a weak victory, right? So it's like when I imagine the range of outcomes, I can imagine them say moderately or mildly outperforming, you know, T bills or short duration T notes. I can picture them kind of equaling it. I can picture them mildly underperforming with a lot more volatility, which would, mm -hmm. which would be bearish. Or I can picture, you know, in the in the in the most bearish case, a pretty significant underperformance. And so, while I don't really have conviction on which one of those scenarios plays out, when I just look at the probability spectrum or the risk reward analysis of of owning too many of those versus owning some of these more defensive yield generating assets. Um, it's just not super compelling to me. Now, that's not to say that I'd be 100% in cash either. I mean, I, yeah. I think there's still other equities that are attractive. Um, and if anything, it's kind of an interesting mix where cash equivalents and really scarce things, that's kind of a good mix right now, almost like a barbell approach. Because if you do get a uptick in inflation that goes against some of your cash equivalents, you know, your energy companies, your Bitcoin uh, might do pretty well, whereas, uh, you know, your equity, your cash equivalents are potentially still holding up better than they would, say, against long duration bonds or large tech stocks. So, um, you know, when when things do get super deeply oversold, 
um, I'm not one to really bet against them too much, too aggressively. So I'm not saying like, you know, go out and short bonds here. I mean, if anything, yeah. I've, I've been a bond bear for years and this move mm -hmm. is even surprising to me in terms of how bad they've done nominally. Um, so I'm not exactly going to jump on the, I'm not going to press the negative bond trade right here. Um, but I, I just don't think it's, it's still, you have to, if you're going to trade that market, um, you have to be very careful. And I think the same is true for the very large, um, tech stocks that, some of them I think are worth owning. Some of the the less egregiously overvalued ones I, I think can still hold up. But when you look at some of the the biggest darlings in the market, um, just the, the four the five year forward expectations of those, especially when adjusting for downside probabilities, is just not that attractive to me. Hmm. That makes sense. All right, let's now move on to your book, Broken Money. Before I before you answer, why is you know our current money monetary order? Why is our money broken? Just a super simple question, Sim uh, um, deceptively simple. It's not actually simple, but what is money? How do you define it? So I think, well, there's two main historical camps. And one thing I try to do in my book is reconcile them to some degree. So, and both of those camps kind of come down to the two ways that you can solve the double coincidence of wants, basically the two ways to avoid barter. One is through credit. So you can, you can defer um, a, a coincidence of needs through time. So, for example, if if we're hunter-gatherers and we want to trade, then we need to have a surplus of what the other side has a deficiency in, right? And that's that's hard to do. Whereas, on the other hand, if we're willing to extend um, either gift culture or delayed reciprocation, um, then one of us can have everything we need right now, and the other side can have a deficiency, and the other person can help them with their deficiency in exchange for payback or a return in some future time. So in that sense, money is credit. Um, that, that's kind of one of the theories of how money developed. And then the other way of looking at it is that if, if we don't, if we're not in, a, in a, um, a known relationship where we're willing to extend credit or deferment or gifts in any way, we want to trade on the spot, then the other thing to do is to find a common unit that we both want all the time. And there's really, there's no situation where we'd have too many of those units that we don't want anymore. Right. So money, money is kind of the, the tradable item where you never feel like you have too much. Um, so it's mm -hmm. small, it's portable, it's divisible, it's long lasting, um, it's liquid. You know, you can always find someone you can take it off your hands for other goods and services. And so some items are either more specialized or more bulky or not as long lasting. They make poor monies. They're, they're the opposite of money. And then certain types of commodities are more money like. And so you, you generally have cultures gravitate towards whatever. Um, commodity is the best money in their environment. And that's an ideal unit for um, defining as a unit of account, using um, as one side of most spot trades, um, and for storing kind of your, your unclear liquid wealth in. So if you don't know exactly what you want in the future, you put it into this like super commodity that you know is as gives you the most optionality. And so those are kind of the two roots of where money came from, either credit or the most saleable commodity. And one kind of conceptual way to link those together is that ultimately money is a ledger. So either a small community or in some cases, larger communities, like for example, in Babylon, they had the temple administrators. You have some sort of ledger that's being run in your community. It could be an oral ledger, a small ledger, like in a very small group. It could be a written ledger. Today we have central banks. Those are our centralized ledgers. So that's that's one set of ledgers. And when you're using instead commodity money, what you're really doing is you're letting nature be the administrator of that ledger. 
So nature's setting the parameters for how hard it is to make that commodity, how hard it is to dilute the existing holders of that commodity. And that's a ledger that is updated through physical possession. Um, and that not every entity knows the full ledger state. Maybe no entity in the, in the environment knows the full ledger state. But nonetheless, there is an objective number, for example, how many shells are in the region, how many gold coins are in the region. This is like a ledger that exists, and it's harder to manipulate than those centralized ledgers. And so I, I think essentially money is the ledger that humans use to try to trade with each other. And it's generally either based on kind of credit and records, or it's based on highly saleable commodities. Okay, so those are the the two sort of philosophies of money. Uh, there's th- uh, three... I guess, uh, uh, main mechanisms of the money, uh, medium of exchange, store of value, and then unit of account. The, what is, so when you uh, buy something with a commodity, the second, the school number two, uh, it's just tobacco, it's, uh, you know, cl- clamshells or it's gold. The unit of account is the, is the commodity, but under a credit transaction, the school number one that you talked about, what is the unit of account for settling transactions? What is it denominated in? So historically, the unit of account would be ironically one of those commodities. And that's one of the things I I was critical of the credit camp is that they would say, you don't even really need commodities. You can just settle things in credit. And then the question becomes, well, what is the unit then, right? And if you look at most of of societies that that use credit, generally the unit would be something like a small bit of silver, um, one meal worth of grain, um, something that is easy recognizable, small, you know, it's kind of a, a... the, the bottom divisible unit in that society. Um, and so usually these two systems are not independent. You don't, you don't normally have an environment mm-hmm. where you have only commodity money and no credit. And you don't normally have an environment of credit, but, but no use of commodity money and no unit that's not tied to commodity money. Now, the big exception has been, um, you know, in the fiat currency era. Um, basically, we've, you know, been in an environment where, and I cover this in the book, once we invented the telegraph, so once, not just invented it, but also deployed it. So once we, you know, in this, especially the second half of the 1800s, when we had widespread telegraph adoption in Europe and North America and eventually the whole world, we were able to send information around very quickly, a lot more quickly than, than we can move physical gold. And the reason that's so important is because if you can send information, you can do a transaction. Um, and so once we really accelerated the speed of our ledgers, um, that became kind of the first credible time where um, governments and banks and central banks had so much kind of consolidated power that they could separate the unit of account more completely from commodity money and for a longer stretch of time than you've normally seen elsewhere. So in the the when you have such powerful technology where no physical commodity is able to keep up with it, um, that appears to be the one major exception where you have a you know very large, um, credit-based system um, where the unit of account is arbitrary. So the unit of account in, in our current system is the dollar, both the United States and in many cases elsewhere, because the dollar is the global reserve currency. And the question is, well, what is a dollar? Uh, a dollar is a direct liability of the Federal Reserve. And the only way you can really kind of quantify it is to say, well, how many liabilities do they have? So this is like your share of the most important ledger in the world. And that's the unit. Um, it's not tied to any one thing. It changes over time. It's very different now than it was 20 years ago. It'll probably be very different 20 years in the future. Um, so, but historically, um, you know, that was more tied. Um, basically, the, the commodity unit of account and credit unit of account were usually roughly the same thing. So 
now that we know what money is, why is money broken? Broken money, why is it broken? Ever since the dawn of the telegraph, uh, specifically the adoption of the telegraph, you've had the need to abstract money, right? So gold was no longer able to move around and be verified at the speed with which global commerce was occurring. And so, you know, one of the one of the um, books that I referenced in my book was Jevons' um, 1875 Money and the Mechanism of Exchange. And the reason I liked it is because, you know, he, this is, for reference, this was like nine years after the first cross-Atlantic telegraph. It had only been like, you know, maybe 20, 25 years of the telegraph being widely used in Europe. And he's, you know, he documents kind of the history of money. So in many ways, his book was similar to mine, just the 1875 version where he's going into the history of money. And then he's examining the current system and explaining the pros and cons of how it works. And what he's observing is that it's become so efficient and so centralized um, due to paper instruments and the telegraph. You know, all this global trade is basically settling through London and it's just people updating a ledger between themselves. He's like money. He's like gold almost never has to exchange hands. Nobody wants to hold gold. Um, but at the same time, he's noticing that it's levered 20 to one because no one ever wants to pull their gold out. And yet, if 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 in any one day, if five percent of entities in the system want to pull their gold out, uh, the system's not really solvent. And so he's saying, like this, you know, it's both incredibly efficient, but I can see a problem here. And of course, that problem materialized in World War One. And so, the way I would describe it is that the fact that commerce now moves so fast that no physical commodity can keep up for most of the past hundred fifty years the only alternative has been centralization and abstraction. So we gravitate towards banks and central banks that define what is money, how money moves around. And it became so powerful that even when all those pegs broke relative to gold, we kept using those broken monies rather than using gold because gold was just inherently too slow to be serving the purpose. Um, and so we find ourselves in a world where there's 160 different fiat currencies um, approximately um, you know, the top handful of them lose value slowly over time. If you're in the long tail of other currencies, you're losing value far more quickly, right? So for example, I just got back from Egypt and the money supply there grows at approximately 20% per year, pretty steadily. Um, and so if, if your wages are not going up by 20% per year, um, you're getting diluted, like your income share is getting diluted compared to the amount of new money that's being created. And at the same time, if your money's not earning at least a 20% interest, your savings are also getting diluted on a regular basis. Um, and that's just one example. There's dozens and dozens of countries in the world with you know a couple billion people in it where they're in an environment where it's very hard for them to, to one, make it so that their income streams um, keep up with the global purchasing power. Uh, it's very hard for them to accumulate liquid savings. And so one of the challenges we've actually seen and I think this is one of the most damning statistics for the current system, is that you can count on one hand the number of developing countries that developed in the past 50 years, right? So how many countries, you know, were, were developing and are now developed? So there's a, there's a, a small handful in Asia. So Singapore, um, you know, South Korea, um, there, Taiwan, there are a handful of ones that, you know, became such powerful exporters and then accumulated capital and then used that capital very well. And they were able to reach what is more or less developing countries, developed country status by modern standards. Um, some of them like South Korea, Taiwan, you still have like, you know, MSCI or F F FTSE might disagree on whether or not they fully meet it. But for all intents mm -hmm. and purposes, in many cases, they're more developed than 
like, you know, like South Korea has better internet than we have here in the United States, for example, that's developed in my book. Um, so these, there's a handful of countries that have gone from developing to developed, but there's been none in Africa. There's, there's been none in Latin America. If anything, you've had some go in reverse during these past 50 years. And so this is a system that is just very hard to develop if you're not already developed. Most of the countries that we know of developed today developed under like a gold standard or a free banking environment or basically environments where money in the unit of account was harder. And when you're in an environment where money is softer and all these countries rely on external financing from an entity that can harden that currency whenever they want, soften that currency whenever they want, that's a much harder environment, I would argue, to develop in. And so money's broken, I would say, is, is largely due to a technological shortcoming. Um, but then that enables all sorts of problematic incentives from there. So what do you view as the golden age of, of money, sort of pun intended? And you, you referenced that book that was written in 1870 or 1875. Later on, you referenced the weakness of the gold standard in World War I. When all, all of the, uh, I don't know if it's all, all, but you know, Britain, France, many, definitely all the Europeans went off gold. So you could no longer convert. Uh, some people would consider that a default. And then the huge weakness in the gold standard of, uh, of the Great Depression and all the gold flowing you know, into the United States. And pretty much there just not being enough gold to, to settle. So wh how, which, where, what do you consider sort of the, yeah, the, the golden age of money when money, maybe if it, if it wasn't broken, if it, it either wasn't broken or it was a lot less you know, broke than it is today? And uh, yeah, and, and why? So in many cases, the developing the development of banking was always about trying to solve some of the deficiencies in money. Um, so, for example, the lack of divisibility or hard to authenticate gold and things like that, or hard to you know hard to safely move it long distances. Um, that's where we got banking. And then once you introduce banking, you get various types of counterparty risk. There's never been some like perfect platonic ideal of money, um, but in general, I would argue that you know. The dawn of the Renaissance was largely tied to the dawn of better um, monetary and banking arrangements. Basically, technology was getting good, but there was no big disconnect yet. Um, and then, you know, if you look at where the United States became a superpower, where Britain became superpower, they became superpowers under um, very stable monetary env environments. Um, so, you know, the 1800s, for example. Um, now, the golden age of money is not necessarily the golden age of other things. For example, I would, I would say that lar in large part, why our world is so prosperous today is because we've had the golden age of energy. So the discovery of hydrocarbons in various forms, um, the application of nuclear power, things like that. So sometimes you get overlaps where the, the, the golden age of one thing is not necessarily the golden age of another thing. It's not, I'm not saying we should go back to the Renaissance or go back to the 1800s um, because they, obviously there's other problems in those days. But I would say that once we entered this environment of the telegraph, that's when money broke down. And I think it was Ron Paul that argued that, you know, it's not a coincidence that the century of central banking occurred during the century of total war. And, you know, there, some of that is hyperbole, I think, in the sense that technology also obviously played a big role. Um, but basically what, what this period enabled um, is that the rate at which countries can debase is much accelerated. So back in any other era of money, if a empire wanted to debase its coinage, it was a very slow process because you can't just magically, you know, all the silver coins or gold coins that are in households throughout your country, you can't just snap your finger and change their substance. You have to, you know, pull them in over time, 
reissue them at diluted rates. And so that's inherently a slow process. And, you know, when you look at, say, the, the Roman coinage, that took centuries to debase. When you look at um, the British pound sterling, um, you know, this is the longest um, serving kind of uh, currency uh, that's still in use today. Um, it's been around for, you know, over a thousand years. And it has something like a 0.15% debasement rate relative to silver um, for like eight centuries. Um, and then only in that modern period, you start to get a rapid period of deceleration. Um, uh, I mean, dilution. And the reason you can do that is because now, um, if you wanted to base your currency, you can do so with a stroke of a pen. Um, you don't have to go through that difficult process of figuring out how to get that coinage in and then reissued at a more diluted rate. And so what that has done is it has empowered nation states and also decreased their transparency. So it's not, you know, and the example I use in the book is that when the UK wanted to join World War I, so this was not a war that was threatening their own soil. This was a war in Europe, and they wanted to get involved for strategic reasons. But it's really hard to sell that idea that we, we have to go fight in this other continent or this other part of the continent between two powers. We're not physically threatened right now, but we don't want this other power to get too big. So we have to go send people to die and do it, and we have to raise taxes to go do it. And so what they instead did was they tried to finance it with debt. And they said, okay, we're going to issue a lot of war bonds and we're going to go uh, fight this war. And the problem was that only about a third of those war bonds were purchased. Um, and the other two thirds were not. And so they, they had trouble financing their desire to go fight the war while retaining stable monetary conditions. So instead what they did was they lied and said the, the bond auction was oversubscribed. And what they really did was finance it through central bank um, credit creation. And so you had basically outright, you know, monetization of government debt. That was, of course, highly inflationary. And so what they did was they basically, you know, opaquely, non-transparently devalued the savings of all British households. They also devalued the, the reserves of any country that was holding, um, you know, pounds or, you know, British bonds and things like that as part of the reserve holdings. All of this was non-transparently devalued and channeled towards war in continental Europe. And so I think that's kind of, um, you know, even though it's a while ago, that's a key example of what happens today um, and is, is kind of a big reason of why this is, you know, I think a lot of the rising populism, a lot of the rising um, this frustration you see in many places is tied to um, the fact that they, they know there's something broken with the money, um, but it's, you know, it's a very complex subject, very hard to articulate how. And it manifests in various ways. And I think that's kind of the area we find ourselves in where we we have these 160 different fiat currency bubbles. We have this non-transparent problem of how money works and what is a fair accounting system. And I think that this is kind of one of the biggest challenges of our day. So when you give very high marks to the uh, the golden age of money, there is there is no golden age of money, but you think that the uh, 1800s, in the, the US and uh, London and for the UK, that was a, a better time for, for money. Is the standard that by which you were judging it, is that just uh, debasement or the level of monetary inflation? I kind of mentioned two golden ages. One was like the, the Renaissance. So earlier mm -hmm. uh, in Europe coming, coming out of the, the Middle Ages. Um, and then, it, you know, more specifically in modern times, that kind of, um, that 1800, either the pre-telegraph or early in the telegraph era before it all blew up. Um, 
those were kind of the eras where it was in many cases the best. And it's, it's both in terms of you had relatively sound money, but then you also had a lot of human flourishing based around that sound money. And that's not to say that everyone was every, like everything was perfect. It certainly wasn't, especially because, you know, in that world, you just had inherently less energy per capita. So you're going to have more things that, that are horrific today is just going to happen more in those eras. Um, and it's a very different environment. But a lot of, you know, the 1800s are a period of rapid um, technological acceleration, rapid reduction uh, in poverty rates, rapid increases in longevity, which extended into the early 1900s. Um, that's where we kind of entered the modern era fueled on what was a, a fairly strong money environment. So, and then, you know, of course the Renaissance, we use, we literally use it today. I mean, Renaissance is, is means rebirth or, you know, going from a crappy time to a better time uh, where art can flourish and where science can flourish and where ideas can prosper and be, be less restrained. Um, and so I, and I don't think it's an accident that those environments occurred in periods where money was working pretty well. A, generally, a general thing you see is that inflation leads to disorganization and disorganization leads to inflation. So it's hard to be highly productive um, in uh, places like Argentina, at least on an economic scale. Individual people can still be productive, but it's hard for that economy to be productive because it's very hard to make long-term contracts. It's, it, there's so many added frictions when you don't have a good accounting system. And then it's hard for people to build liquid savings, have confidence about the future, deploy those savings into good investments or good entrepreneurship uh, environments. And instead you get brain drain. People want to leave. They want to go elsewhere. They want to access better monies. And so I think it's not a coincidence that um, some of the best periods of, of kind of art, science, engineering, um, economic growth occurred under good money environments. And the one pushback I generally get on that is people say, well, you know, if you look in the 20th century, we've seen, you know, rapid reductions in, you know, still for, like reductions in global poverty, reductions in all this. And I would say, well, yes, but a large, a lot of that is tied to energy that we've continued the trend mm -hmm. of getting more and more energy per capita. Um, that's continuing the trend of human flourishing. Um, but that's, I think, going to, one, start running into headwinds. And two, if the money gets bad enough, you don't really see that happening anymore. So, for example, a lot of countries are going backwards compared to where they were decades ago, whether it's Argentina, um, whether it's where there's many other developing countries, um, Lebanon, for example. Some of these places were in many aspects very highly developed and it's their money systems that broke. Um, and so one way I would describe it is that if you're if you're running a developed country, the two things not to mess up are your money or your energy security. Because if you mess up those things, that's that's where you actually start to have the most severe economic problems. How would you judge uh, the 1800s on very low rates of monetary inflation? You give it high marks. But what about levels of financial inclusion in terms of you know, who had a bank account, what percentage of the population interacted with this monetary system at all versus people either you know had no money whatsoever or they they conducted business in you know, basically rags or like, uh, you know, basically paper, paper money that they traded among, amongst themselves, uh, as well as financial instability, the, the very uh, high rate of bank failures uh, throughout the 1800s, as well as, as just the, the, the fact that when there is you know, deflation and you, you have to declare bankruptcy, your debts are not inflated away. And uh, that can be you know, quite good for uh, capitalists and you know, business people. But for 
for borrowers uh, who are indebted, it can not be great. You know, and, and that's why a lot of populist movements to re- you know represent the working class they strongly oppose the 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 work the excuse me the gold standard. This the, the numbers themselves I think speak for themselves, which is basically that there was a huge uptick in longevity and overall wealth creation. Um, now there were there were in the United States, and this is a very country specific thing. In the United States, you had very high levels of wealth concentration. Um, ironically, you've, you've you've only in recent years kind of revisited those same degrees of wealth concentration, um, and so they're clearly not unique to a hard money environment. Um, you can have very high rates of wealth concentration in that environment um, in different types of monetary environments. So back then, again, you still had constraints on. You know, if you look at the per capita energy usage back then, it's a fraction of what it was now. And so that's inherently going to make a much harsher world. Um, and so when I talk about kind of that being the golden age of money, um, not necessarily overlapping with the other types of golden ages, because you still had other shortcomings. You had, you know, like right now, I like to go back, we're in the golden age of energy. And when you're comparing an era where there's the golden age of money, but not the golden age of energy, uh, in many cases, energy trumps that. Basically, having more energy per capita at your disposal is arguably the single biggest variable, and money's probably the second biggest. Um, and so, in those environments, you know, you still have problems of financial inclusion. You still had other things, but a lot of that was technological shortcomings, energy shortcomings, and that kind of thing. And you know, part of why I wrote the book is that I view technology as kind of a driving force for a lot of things, more so than politics and things like that. Now, obviously, politics can be very important. I mean, politics determined which countries came out of the 20th century on top versus which ones, you know, descended into poverty due to like, you know, communist beliefs and things like that, right? So politics can be very important. But the the, the limitation of politics and things like that is that's that's more temporary and local, Whereas technology drives things forward permanently and globally. So, for example, by inventing refrigeration or inventing electricity or inventing flight, for example, you solve a problem that can then start spreading everywhere. And unless you have a total civilizational collapse, it's never undone. It's just a, it's a permanent improvement um, that, that more and more humans have access to forever. And so when you look at the, um, say, the gold community, like the, the hard money proponents there, in many cases, they kind of look back on that period as something they want to return to. Um, whereas one thing I argue is that things kind of happened the way they had to and couldn't really have happened almost any other way, at least in terms of money, which is that as we started to invent things that brought our world together more, so the telegraph, the telephone, um, the radio, the internet, um, all these kind of increasing telecommunications technologies, the fact that money started moving around faster started to invalidate that old era. That was kind of a golden age that was the golden age for its time. And then as we kind of entered this new era, our money got worse, but we still had the um, ongoing energy dividends um, from this kind of, you know, say two century energy revolution. And what's interesting going forward is that, you know, now with Bitcoin and adjacent technologies, I think there's a way to build a new system that has a lot of the features of that old system, but in this digital era, right? So I don't, I don't really believe in going back to prior golden eras because a golden era that was the best it could have been in that era or, you know, was working well in that era is unlikely to work well in this era because you have very different technological realities. And there's a reason that that prior system was not around anymore. What is, what is less transparent about fiat currency? What's, what's the lack of transparency? What's the lack of transparent is that you don't have to finance things with taxes. 
um, you can you can delay, defer, and then dilute over time. And an example I use in the book is that um, when the United States was deciding what, what we were going into the uh, Iraq War, and there were polls at the time where they would survey Americans, like Gallup polls, and say, "Are you in favor of the invasion of Iraq?" And you would have you know seventy three percent, seventy six percent approval ratings. He said, "Yes, we should go invade Iraq." Um, and my argument was, if he said, okay, we're going to invade Iraq, but we're going to pay for it. So there's going to be a, you know, 5% or 10% income tax, war tax to pay for that. Now what, now what are the poll numbers going to look like? And obviously it's hard to say exactly what the poll numbers would look like, but I'm, I'm sure we'd agree that they would, they would collapse significantly versus the 70 some percentile. If there's actually going to be a tax on people for invading this country that they can't even point to on a map, for example, that, you know, most fewer people could identify Iraq on a map than the ones that said we should invade it. Um, and so, and another thing I kind of cite is a study that showed that each war in American history, kind of over the last century or so, like let's say the, the post-World War II environment, or even including the World War II environment, was increasing less financed by taxes. So, you know, World War II had all, you know, there was war bonds, there was all sorts of like kind of, it was a very transparent thing. Um, and as we got more and more wars over time, so the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iraq War, um, they got less and less transparently financed in real time through either taxes or transparent appropriations. And instead, it's credit, uh, currency dilution, um, kind of off-the-record financing things. And so the, the downside of the way the fiat currency enables this is that instead of paying for their things with taxes or even... Um, slow debasement they're able to turn to more rapid um uh like you know debasement of currency and they're able to finance things where people are not able to readily judge what this thing costs because the the things are deferred by 10 20 30 40 years and by the time you're running into those problems it's hard to link them back to these problems so for example how many people today where we're talking you know we started this discussion by talking about um you know, bond oversupply and bond yields and stuff like that. How many people would tie that back to the war in Iraq, for example? How many people are talking about that right now? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I, I say in the book, the cost of war project um, by Brown University estimates that the, the, the whole war on terror costs us something like $6 trillion. Um, it's going to cost us, you know, like something like $13 trillion by 2050. Um, and what did we get for it? Right. So that's, that was one of the biggest contributors to where we find ourselves in the situation now, a bunch of, along with a bunch of other contributors. But no one, under, and understandably so, no one ever looks back 20, 30 years when we have a fiscal crisis to say, how did we get to this? It's always, you know, the, the dialogue, is it is it Biden's fault? Is it Trump's fault? Right? It's all the current period that, that everyone's focused on. No one looks to the accumulation of all this over time. And that's what the fiat currency system has enabled us to do is that it defers the cost so long that it's, it becomes totally removed from what caused it in the first place. With a hard money, commodity money, gold, Bitcoin, that sort of uh, devaluation is, is impossible. Because, because I think when we had a gold standard, there was it's, wars have always been paid with, with credit, right? I mean, it's, it's never like, let's tax people and then let's use that taxes to go to war. It's, I mean, maybe that's that for the first day, but you know, pretty soon it's, uh, it's, it's going to the basement. Yes, but then when you have a central bank that can't print their own unit and keep doing it indefinitely, um, that credit has like a temporary window. Um, so it's it's your your ability to win the war quickly or 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 make up or something 
that's a much shorter window, right? So a lot of wars are financed by credit, but those creditors are, are looking at this and saying, this, this might actually be a nominal default. Um, if, if I'm letting, I'm lending them gold and they, they can't print gold. And if this war is not going well, I'm not going to keep financing. Them. Um, whereas when you have fiat currency, you know, your limit is not how much gold you have in your vault or how much gold you can get from creditors. It's the entire liquid savings of your citizenry can be on repeatedly devalued until you are have completely exhausted that capability. So there's a much larger pool that you can draw from non-transparently. And again, I, I would not argue, okay, we have to go back and reconstruct the monetary system of the 1800s. I think that that's, it's both not, as, not necessarily even desirable, but even if it was desirable, it's not possible, right? It's just the, the system developed this way be, because of the technology that are, and the incentive structures that allowed it to. It's like, there's a reason why in 200 countries, you don't see any gold standards, you don't see any countries that have full reserve banking. It's in my view, not because those things are bad, but because those things just, they didn't have the incentive structure that allowed them to keep going when you had other ways of doing things. And so instead, what we generally see is, I think things are going to get in many cases, at least from a monetary perspective, not necessarily other cases, but monetary perspective, things generally get worse and worse and worse and worse until that country loses its ability to print the currency. And this is normally what you see in developed countries. So um, when you have a country like Lebanon on a very extreme end or Argentina, a little bit less extreme, but still similar, as countries start to go in that direction, they start getting dollarized. And it's not because the country chooses to dollarize or a bunch of intellectuals decide, okay, we have to go back to a harder money system. It's that more and more people just start protecting themselves by, um, you know, holding dollars, stable coins, whatever, uh, other foreign currency, gold, instead of the local currency. And then in many cases, they'll start even um, doing unit of account contracts. So they'll start paying each other in those other types of units because they don't want to deal with the fact that this like other unit is hyperinflating or borderline hyperinflating. Um, and in developed countries, it's, you know, it's a much longer, slower process, but I think we're kind of on the same we're on the same train ride. It's just that we have a lot more track ahead of us than a developed, uh, developing country had because we have a lot more capital to start with. Um, we have a lot more extensive institutions, a lot more uh, developed capital markets. But I think over time, the currency becomes more and more untenable and people start reaching for other things. And if this was another era, they might reach back for gold. Like in, in the 1970s, when things were spiraling out of control, gold had a very big bubble. And whereas today, um, the new contenders are obviously things like Bitcoin, um, where, you know, for developing countries, the apex predator is the dollar. And when you look at the United States or Europe, the, the potential long range apex predator, is something like Bitcoin, where you have a scarce open source money um, that is that is immune to a lot of things that these currencies are immune to. Now, it remains to be seen how that's going to turn out. But I think that the the. The market only tolerates things for as long as it can until it starts seeing viable alternatives. It's not again, it's not like a bunch of people are going to get around and decide this is what our new system is going to look like. I think it's just going to be a messier country by country direction as people gravitate towards they they do their best to gravitate up in terms of monetary hardness in a in a more bottom up way. And so, a country that would tie its currency to Bitcoin, number one, I presume that is. Your, your case, it's not actually Bitcoin is the currency. It's the currency is, is tied to Bitcoin. In other words, the, the base money layer is Bitcoin, and that is tied to the broad money, what, what everyone you know, goes to, to buy their coffee with. 
uh, at a fixed ratio. That, that's what the gold standard was. So is, is that what you sort of imagine the, the future as being? And what are the uh, benefits that, you, that you'd imagine? And then I'll, I'll propose some uh, potential drawbacks. So in these countries that get forcibly dollarized, you don't see the country deciding, okay, we're going to increase our dollar reserves. And in, in fact, part of the reason they're in that situation is because they can't. Um, they're often running trade deficits or they have an ability to, they have an inability to accumulate reserve capital. Um, and so in those cases, it's not that their countries are backing themselves by dollars, it's that people are just choosing to use dollars, uh, either direct dollars or it's almost like a free bank, like, you know, stable coins are kind of like a rebirth of a free banking era. They would say, I'd rather, I'd rather trust stable coin issuer XYZ than trust my local government uh, in its own currency, right? So they're both taking on dollar risk and counterparty risk from, you know, the intermediary to actually hold that the collateral for those dollars. And they're saying, well, at least in this like 12 month window, I trust this entity more than I trust my, my own government. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm not necessarily referring to that abstraction. I'm referring to like literally a direct switchover where you get more private sector competition for money because the local monetary monopoly has become so um, incapable of enforcing its monopoly anymore. Uh, it gets bad enough that people just disregard that monopoly and they they go elsewhere. Um, and so while I do think you could see some countries add things like Bitcoin to their reserves, you know, I think someone would be, have to be somewhat foolish to hold a fractionally denominated um, you know, exposure to Bitcoin rather than to hold Bitcoin directly. Um, you know, fractional reserve can work if you're in a constant monetary dilution, right? So if you have a flexible base layer of money and your interest rate that you get on your assets is less than the rate of money supply growth, um, you're probably not going to get nominally defaulted on, you're just going to get it diluted over time. Whereas when you're in an environment where the underlying unit is very scarce, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, fractional reserve systems will break eventually because there's a lack of constraint between how fast claims can grow versus how fast the underlying can go. So I don't really view fractional reserve as the method to solve the system. If anything, I think fractional reserve was born, um, you know, it, it was always around, but it really it became the norm in this telegraph you know, kind of telecommunication enhanced world because nothing other than centralization and abstraction was sufficient to solve gold's slow movement problem in this digital world, right? And I think that that's a, that's a, we have a different set of problems or a different solution set in a future world than we had in this, this past 150 years. Okay. So I, I actually was wrong. I thought you want, you know, in the 1920s, uh, there was pound sterling, but it was backed by gold and banks extending and creating bank deposits or printing money that was constrained by how much gold was in the vault, ultimately the gold, the gold at the, the Bank of England. Uh, and likewise, you know, a, a wildcat bank, if, you know, in the 1840s, if there was a bank of Florida and uh, someone came up here, I might give them 80 cents on the dollar. Every bank had their own currency and that was backed by gold. So I was sort of making a speculative bet. Does this Bank of Florida even exist? I mean, in some cases they, they didn't. There was there was a fraud and you know, bank failures were exceptionally you know, common during that era. So you're actually, you want to go much beyond that. You're Because in the golden, you know, one of the golden ages of money, there there was fractional reserve banking. Um, I mean, if there wasn't, no banks would have would have ever failed. You say, no, actually nothing is tied to Bitcoin. The currency itself is Bitcoin. That's That's your view. Yeah, or at least that as people choose their own monies, um, they'll gravitate towards what makes sense for them. And in the current environment, a lot of developing countries will gravitate towards dollars. 
Um, but I think as the dollar approaches, and this is again, this is not like a next year story. This is a a long term story playing out. But as our debt crisis and our ability to manage the central ledger eventually goes directionally similar to a lot of these emerging markets, um, we have to look, you know, in a similar way that Argentinians gravitate towards the dollar. What do Americans gravitate towards, or what do Europeans gravitate towards as countries, as currencies like the dollar and the euro themselves um, start to have those problems? And so I think I think Bitcoin is one of the answers. And again, there's like a set of you know probabilities here. So it's like, can Bitcoin remain secure and decentralized? Um, if it can't, then it, it gets it, you know gets voted off the island in terms of things that people are going to gravitate towards. I guess gold then then you know gets up a notch again. Um, but as long as it can retain its characteristics, it, it, it's still this like attractive item out there where you can say, well, there's this global um, ledger. Uh, it's open source. You can bring money anywhere in the world with an internet connection. Um, it has zero supply dilution. People cre- people gravitate towards it. And I think it's going to, anytime you try to fracture reserve it, you're very likely to run into breakage within a number of years. Um and that's not to say you can't have custodians. I think full reserve custodians can still operate in that world. Um, if anything, they would have to because you know you need you need additional layers of speed and um, convenience. Um, but this is a world where now we have things like you can federate custody, so you're not trusting a single entity, but you're you're trusting a established group of entities. Um, there's cryptographic proof that you hold the reserves um, that you say you do. Um, and both of those techniques, for example, have limitations, like, you know, a federation can still fail. Um, it just more entities, more parties have to fail than, than one party, but it's still, it's still fallible. Similar, you know, proof reserves can't, can't prove, um, proof of non-liabilities. So when you prove how much assets you have, you can't prove a negative that you don't have a liability that's like off the books, for example. Um, but that still is better than just having a, a black box where you don't even know what's there, right? So in the free banking era, how do you how do you audit the bank of you know such and such? Yeah, you don't. There's no way to do it. So encryption and open source tech gives us it's it's like you know in many ways this kind of recent boom bust cycles in the crypto market has been kind of a recreation of the wildcat era, um, and I think that going forward the market solidifies towards things that are more sustainable, things that are more robust, either, you know, full reserve, federations, proof of reserves, these types of things that, that, you know, I think make more sense because if you don't choose those methods, you're likely to get wrecked. Whereas if you do chose those methods, you reduce your probability of getting wrecked. And of course the taking self-custody of your coin is like the least wreckage approach, as long as the underlying protocol itself holds up. Um, but that's still a fairly small share of users. So who are the banks in this environment? Or I guess if there are no banks, who are the financial intermediaries? Because whether it's Bitcoin or gold, it, is it literally no regulation and no intermediaries at all, whether it's the, a government or a bank? Uh, because to me, that seems like it has a, a whole series of uh, drawbacks that we can get into. But, but who, is the, you know, who is the financial intermediary where... Uh, you know, if you want to go to Europe and you want to go on a vacation, who is accepting that payment? And I, you know, am I paying the hotel? I'm just sending it to the hotel's uh, wallet address. Or if there is no, you know, Bitcoin and it's gold, I'm actually bringing my gold with me on the on the plane because again, it's not dollars backed by gold as it was, you know, hundreds of years ago. It, it's literally gold. I mean, that that it's prohibitively expensive, right? 
Well, that's why I don't think it'll be physical gold making a comeback. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if let's say in a world where Bitcoin fails um, and then eventually fiat currencies as we know them fail or run into just kind of unrecoverable inflationary spirals um, where it's just like every year is like another round of double digit inflation or something, you would see a return of gold, but there's no way where gold is like, like you said, there's no way you're just bringing gold on an airplane to fly around and, play, and pay for your European vacation. So you'd probably have a recreation of this. You'd have like a reset and a recreation of the system, um, probably based around gold, but then they probably would fractionally reserve it again. And then you'd probably enter a whole nother fiat currency era. So that, that's, that's the uh, direction I would assume if, if Bitcoin fails. Um, mm -hmm. In a world where Bitcoin doesn't fail, um, you know, the neat part about Bitcoin is it is efficient. You can just pay the hotel in Bitcoin or Lightning or um, some sort of liquid network on top of it, like a federation, depending on what's prevalent in that world. I mean, we're talking if, if we're in a world where Bitcoin has 10 or 20 or 50 times more adoption than it has now, um, that's a world where there's probably layers and services that we don't even know yet. Um, but the point is that there's you can choose your own part of the stack to operate on, right? So, you know, maybe a large hotel company works with a big custodian like Cash App or something. Uh, and maybe a smaller one says, you know, we'll, we'll take direct lightning payments. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do, you know, we have a range of options. Kind of like how when you write, when you look to pay now, it's like we accept Visa, MasterCard, Cash, um, this other payment method. Um, I think you can see a world where it's like, you know, we accept on-chain lightning, um, you know, this custodian. Like you can, you can see kind of a range of payment options. And I think that that's still a world where governments exist and there's regulatory bodies and things like that. I think a way to frame it is that in the gold era, gold was this decentralized base layer. So it's this, you know, nature's ledger. Um, you can mine it, but no one sets the rules of gold. Gold is gold. And so the financial system is built on the perimeter of the system, not this, not the core of the system. But eventually because the telegraph and other telecommunication technologies came so prevalent, um, financial institutions were able to kind of overtake that system, become the core of the system. And then eventually they, when they drop gold entirely, you know, central banks and banks now are the core of the system. They, they run the base layer. They are the source of money creation and they are the controllers of the system. If you have that Bitcoin or Bitcoin type of world, it almost brings back that gold world, but in digital form where Banks and entities still exist in various ways, but instead of being at the core of the system, they're on the perimeter of the system. They're, they're able to, to go to the Bitcoin network, um, work on top of it, offer services based around Bitcoin, but they can't print Bitcoin. They don't control Bitcoin. They're not making loans. They can make loans. I think that in that world, credit still exists. I just think fractional reserve credit is far more dangerous. You know, one people often assume that if there's no fractional reserve banking, there's no credit. Um, but all fractions or banking is, is duration mis mismatching, right? So you're, you're double counting money. You're telling, so in a fractional reserve system, depositors put in money and are told that these are demand deposits. You can pull these out anytime during banking hours. Mm -hmm. Um, but then instead of having a hundred percent of those assets ready to go, they say, well, I mean, in, in practice, no more than 10% of these people are ever going to want to, you know, pull back at once. So we can take most of these deposits and lend them out in less liquid things, even though we are making a promise of total liquidity to these people. So, right? so it's inherently a fragile probability-based model. Um, whereas if you instead had a bank that was duration matched, which is you say, okay, you can do demand deposits 
And if you do, we're going to hold 100% of those demand deposits in the underlying. Could be gold, could be Bitcoin, whatever. Um, in fiat, it could just be cash, like at the at the central bank ledger. And then um, if you want to get yield on it, um, you can you can do a certificate of deposit. You can lock up capital for a year, two years, five years, and we're going to lend that out to earn interest. And basically, it just means that your the bank's loans are backed by capital that has a similar duration, or basically the mm-hmm. same duration or higher. And so you're not you're not making two kind of contradictory promises about liquidity, where you're promising liquidity but you don't have it in liquid assets. Instead, you're saying liquid deposits are in liquid assets and illiquid deposits are in illiquid assets that they can potentially earn a higher return. So I think in that in that type of world, um, you know, credit still exists. There's still a need for credit. Um, people still have liquidity needs. Um, it's just that the speed and the the fact that Bitcoin has zero supply growth um, makes it a lot more risky to hold in a fractional reserve environment than dollars, and then even riskier to hold than than gold. Right. So as you as an asset becomes both faster and with less supply growth, the riskier it is to fractionally reserve that unit. Uh, why is that? Because if so, part of why gold could be fractionally reserved for so long is that it was slow. Um, and, and bulky. So people didn't want to, they, they'd rather just have their banker take care of it for them. Um, they didn't want to deal with it themselves. Even in that 1875 book I referenced, Devin's like, most people wouldn't be embarrassed to be caught with large amounts of gold because it's just like, you know, it's just, it's not something they want to deal with. Um, different coins can have different like imperfections and be worn and, you know, like wear and tear and stuff like that. Like, just give me the bank notes, right? right. Um, and so, in that environment, gold was not pulled out frequently enough. And so it allowed for multi-decades of, of this abstraction to grow and grow and grow until you get like a 1929 environment, right? So um, the these slow speed of gold is what allows it to be kind of paperized for, for a longer period of time. And then in addition, gold was still growing in supply, depending on the era, by 1% to 2% per year. During the gold rush, it was upwards of 6% um, annual supply growth in the United States. Uh, but basically, you still had a positive growth rate, which means that the, the underlying base layer is still increasing. And so it's still, it's, it, it, that, again, prolongs the, the duration of which you can kind of get away with making these like mismatched claims of what you're doing with the liquidity. Um, whereas if you have a unit where on a Sunday night, you can just pull it out, um, and you can get like yeah. an Eves and bank run, uh, not like we, and we saw this to some extent with Silicon Valley bank. I mean, part of why these things happened was because software APIs and things like that allow bank runs to occur a lot quicker than they used to. You used to be you'd have to go Silvergate to, for, for crypto, right? Exactly. You just have to, you just have to go to the bank and they, they could even do tricks like, you know, counting out your coins slowly to, to delay how like, yeah. you know, like only so many people can go to physical location and get their, and get their money out. Yep. In a digital world, you can pull your money out faster. So I think the even in the fiat currency system, the average liquidity needs of a bank are higher now. Um, and then if you combine that and you say, well, like your bank, there's no printer there should it fail, right? So for example, I feel comfortable holding money in um, a bank because as long as it's under the FDIC limit because I know that there's like a 99% chance that that's not going to nominally go away because there's a printer there, right? Um, whereas I would feel far less comfortable holding Bitcoin in a fractional reserve bank, knowing that if, you know, this is basically a leveraged bond fund, and if this bond yeah. fund fails, 
uh, there's no there's no savior there. I'm not getting my Bitcoin back. It would be impossible for there to be deposit insurance or a publicly backed deposit insurance because the government can't print it, right? Exactly. You could still have you could still have like partial insurance where you say, okay, if you get a weird outlier case where your bank alone fails, you you, you still have insurance schemes to insure banks. And you see that today with, with Bitcoin, where you can have like, you know, insurance against um, thefts and hacks and stuff like that. Um, but you can't have a bailout of the whole system when the underlying unit can't be printed. Right. So if you look around, you see all these banks are fractionally reserved and they're all using a unit that nobody can make more of. That's super dangerous. Right. So the combination of the heart, like the, the supply growth, like the scarcity of that underlying unit, and then the speed with which it can be pulled out. And the ease with which it can be verified in self-custody, should that be chosen, um, all uh, basically affect the how long you can build a fractional reserve banking system on that without it breaking. Okay, so uh, now I want to go to a, a potential weakness that I'm sure you, you know, you've thought a lot about, which is, let's say, uh, so the, the inflation rate of gold was 1% to 2%. That's how much new gold was, was mined out of the ground. Uh, so stock to flow ratio of 60 or 70. Bitcoin, it's much uh, less, and it's getting you know, much less with, with every halving. So there's only ever going to be uh, uh, 21 million of them. Uh, and let's say the adoption rate in this world, you remember, of Bitcoin, uh, you know, in year one, there's, you know, X numbers in year two, it's, it's two X in year three, it's four X. So it, Bitcoin users double every single year. So the uh, deflation rate f- effectively would be 50% every year, there would be a negative 50% inflation rate. Uh, so would, would it be, you know, now in, in these days, if inflation is 5%, and you get a 15% raise, that's good at you, you're in real terms, your standards of living are up 10%. Uh, would it be, you know, your wages would go down 50%, but you're actually flat in real terms? Or if you actually, if your wages didn't go up, you'd say, hey, I'm twice as, uh, you know, my life standard of living have gone up twice as, as much because I'm, I'm just owning this incredibly inflationary, deflationary currency. So right now, Bitcoin is in an early phase of its adoption. So when, when it goes from, say, 0.1% of people own Bitcoin to 1% of people own Bitcoin, and then it goes to 10% of people own Bitcoin, you get that hyper-deflationary force, right? So the value of a, an, an every individual Bitcoin and overall Bitcoin market cap sky goes up, you know, exponentially. Let's say over this past ten-year period, and so prices dominated Bitcoin collapse. Um, but it, in a world where Bitcoin's bigger, right? If it if it starts to approach total addressable market, maybe if maybe maybe um forty percent of people own Bitcoin. Um, it's one of the major currencies. It's used. And it's kind of now slowly settling at that like uh, high level, that like plateau of adoption. You no longer have that kind of exponential move upward. Instead, basically, you have a scarce unit. And as technological production gets better over time, most things should get gradually cheaper when dominant in Bitcoin. You know, as an example, over the past, say, you know, since 1960, US money supply growth has been about 7% per year on average. Um, and when you look at, say, what is inflation done, right? So things like waterfront properties or fine art generally went up roughly in line with the money supply growth because these are finite things. And so as we made more monetary units, they went up at roughly the same price, pace in terms of price. Now, it's a, it's a bumpier path. You know, there'd be, there could be bubbles or depressions in those assets. But over a multi-decade stretch, that's roughly the, the rate that they grew at. 
And when you go down to a little bit less scarcity, things like gold. So gold was growing at about one and a half percent per year, um, as far as estimates can tell during that period. Um, and median houses. So houses are an energy intensive, labor intensive thing to build, but we can build more of them. Um, or oil. So oil is challenging to get. It takes a lot of infrastructure and, and resources to get. Um, but we do get better and more productive at finding and extracting oil over time, with shale being an obvious example. And so those types of things generally went up not as fast as money supply growth, but they went up faster than the official CPI readings. And then there's things we got exponentially better at making. So um, one gigabyte of memory, for example, storage. Um, you know, I used to be excited when like a computer had 256 megabytes of RAM, right? And so like as we've gotten way better at electronics, anything Moore's Law related, software, offshoring, industrialization, a lot of those things were outright deflationary. Um, we just got exponentially better at making them. So like, what is the cost of taking and storing a picture today compared to what it costs, you know, even um, when I was a kid and I'm not that old, right? So um, the, the, that type of thing has really weighed down the CPI basket. So inflation is this spectrum that exists where some things we can't make any more of, some things we can make some more of, and some things we get exponentially better at making. And so in, in that sort of world where either gold or Bitcoin is money, most things generally get cheaper over time versus those things, right? So, you know, if you look at, say, gold price and oil over the past century and a half, it looks like a big zigzag line, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at gold, at oil priced in dollars, it goes, you know, it's got these occasional huge bursts and the new plateaus and another burst higher. It goes up, it goes up like a hundredfold over a hundred years, um, and that's because it's the underlying unit. Um, and so when most things are kind of equal to down versus gold over the long arc of time, um, and with Bitcoin that has even zero supply inflation, you have slightly, slightly more price deflation than you have in gold, um, something by like an additional 1.5% more because you're comparing zero to an average of 1.5%. And so in that world, most things on average get cheaper over time, not necessarily every single year, but as long as civilization is advancing, as long as technology is getting better, you'd expect most things to, or at least some things, to gradually get cheaper when it's not in your Bitcoin. Tell me about the technology of Bitcoin. And you know, as people know and will be able to see, I'm not a te- technologically sophisticated person at all. Um, so I, I'm reading this online. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's just I mean this is what Google is saying that Bitcoin processes around seven transactions per second, whereas Visa, which actually you just wrote up about on your uh, website, uh, Linalden Research, uh, and Investment Strategy, uh, Visa. So Bitcoin has seven transactions per second. Visa can do twenty four thousand transactions per second. So if everyone in the world is using Bitcoin, is the Bitcoin network uh, powerful enough? Can it handle that throughput? And if you're relying upon a third party entity such as the Lightning Network, how can you trust that? And, you know, there's some crypto startup that says, oh, trust me, you know, to do it. I mean, are you, why would that be a better thing to trust than, say, JP Morgan or the Federal Reserve? So I think the, the most direct comparison is Bitcoin to Fedwire. So if you look at the, at the Fedwire system, it's a settlement system in the United States. It settles, and this is, not a, this is not like a typo, one quadrillion worth of gross settlement volumes per year. Um, so a thousand trillions. Um, and it does that with these almost exactly the same number of transactions as Bitcoin does. Um, so it's got something like seven transactions per second. Unlike Bitcoin, it doesn't work around the clock. Um, so those, those transactions are in, are consolidated during business hours. Um, 
But you know, the, the way it works is that you have an average transaction size of like 5 million and you have 200 million of those a year. And so you get a quadrillion worth of, of settlement volumes. And then you have other things that are built on top of that um, and they can batch transactions and send them over these settlements. Um, and so Visa is not a direct comparison of Bitcoin because Visa is a layer on top of a system. So they're, you know, they're a signaling mechanism for banks to settle and for the underlying unit of account to do what it's going to do. And so with Bitcoin, you generally seen a direction similar to that so far. And this, this really happened over the past five years or so. We have a breaking into various layers. Um, and you saw the underlying base layer. That's like your gold and fed wire combined into one system. So it's both the units and it's the, the ability to settle those units and verify those units. Um, you know, on average, it's a 10 minute plus transaction time. And as you pointed out, you're, you're limited to roughly what Fedwire currently does, um, which is, you know, a, a pretty large number of transactions, but not big on the, on the global scale. And then you have higher layers on top of that that are able to process a lot more transactions and then settle back to that. And so Lightning, you know, to clarify, Lightning is not a third party. Lightning is another open source technology. It, it, all it is basically two of two multi-sig um, channels on top of Bitcoin. And so it, unless there's a technical bug, um, there's no like custodial risk that you're taking on by using Lightning. You're, you're taking on some degree of, you know, you're instead of having your Bitcoin in like cold storage, you're basically it's in hot storage, but it's non-custodial, right? So so far there's been very limited numbers of people that lose Bitcoin on the Lightning Network because it's it's more of like instead of a big centralized custodial honeypot that can get taken, it's more like you can have individual channel issues and things like that, but. Basically, you're you're making these smart contracts in order to send value over over um, very quickly, and so you can scale with that method. But then, in addition, you also have things like Cash App. So, in Cash App, for example, any Cash App user can send Bitcoin basically for free. I think for to any other Cash App user, and you're just using Cash App's ledger, right? And so, in some sense, you have to trust Cash App. But then, of course, Cash App could do things like proof of reserves. Um, you can also, there's Liquid, which is currently not really well used, but I think it's a model of thinking about this. So in Liquid, you have like 15 entities that run a federation um, and you can peg Bitcoin into it. And then a Liquid Bitcoin, it, it can settle way more transactions per unit of a time. Um, it's also more programmable. Um, and then you can peg out. And in order for that to, to fail, I you'd have to have a catastrophic technical bug of some sort or you'd have to have the majority of those federation entities um, steal from you. So not just one entity, but you'd have to have a majority of entities um, kind of grouped together to steal from the users of that system. And of course, at that point, you can have legal recourse and things like that. So basically, in this kind of world that we envision here, at least as like a thought example, you have the underlying base layer, you have various open source layers on top of that that are still permissionless, still open source, still non-custodial, but that are faster and have other trade-offs. And then you have custodial arrangements that you can choose to have some of your money. So for example, I can have an environment where maybe every quarter I pull my surplus back into my cold storage savings with one transaction, but I'm, I'm fine with leaving, say, you know, the past month of earnings or the past couple months of earnings in my checking account type of environment on this more custodial type of, of platform. And so basically in that world, you choose your own layer of what makes sense to you. If you're, if you've got, you know, if you're in a developing country, you've got the equivalent of, you know, $500 worth of savings, you want to make 
payments, you know, you're maybe not, you're not thinking of like Michael Saylor level of security here, right? You're not mm -hmm. like, you know, how, how are you going to store a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin? You're thinking, okay, how do I not get rug pulled? How do I make transactions? What is efficient? How do I save on fees? That kind of thing. If they start to build surplus savings, then they might start thinking more about security and pulling that deeper towards them. Whereas if you're an intermediate level size person, maybe you have thousands of savings, maybe you do pull that into your own storage um, from time to time um, or pull it into at least like a, a deeper layer, maybe a federation instead of a single custodian. Maybe pull it into a, a very well audited and very well proven custodian, for example, rather than one of those faster environments. So I think the, the point in that ecosystem is that layers greatly extend the speed of transactions that can occur and you choose your own layer that makes sense for what you're trying to do. And you can operate a multiple layer simultaneously. So your savings layer and your payment layer can be two different layers. Can you envision a world where it doesn't result in one of two things, which is how I, I see it for the system working? Number one is that everyone has to become a computer scientist. You know, you, you have an engineering background, very uh, you know, uh, fluent in this technology. I'm not, I think there are probably a lot more people like me, you know, so, uh, you know, for, for people to use the system, they have to either, you know, be, know as much, you know, cryptography as you, or at least a certain base layer, which, you know, most people on this, on this earth in, in any country does not have, or two, in the same way that people who are not familiar with payments technology, they just tap their credit card or swipe their credit card. People can just, you know, tap their card or, or do whatever. And it's very easy as a consumer with Bitcoin, but, they have to trust a, an entity, and it is a fiat world, at, after all. And you, you know, you're relying on on companies that uh, you know, some of which may be great, but some of which, you know, I mean, now uh, Sam Bankman Fried, a few uh, miles downtown of where I am, uh, is a uh, uh, you know standing trial for running a huge financial uh, scam. And uh, within the the traditional financial world, with all of its issues, that is you know, a lot, it's a lot harder to do. Obviously it happens, but it's a lot, it's a lot harder to do. Whereas, you know, in this unregulated world, um, it's, it's potentially easier. So, so yeah, I guess does, does everyone, uh, either have to become very, uh, proficient and to use this t technology so that they can sort of, you know, be, be permissionless or do they have to, if they're, if they're not, how can they access this without relying on a third party who they have to trust? So I think there are two answers to that one is, and, and it's, it's ending. Cause I've, I was watching Bitcoin since like 2010 even though I didn't own it back then. And every time I would kind of look at it and then lose interest and go away and look at it again a few years later, the user experience is always better than the prior time. So when I looked at it at first, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should get like a gaming computer and start mining some of this. And I was like, that sounds complicated. I'll figure out next week, right? It's not like, and again, I was a logical engineer, but I'm like, I'm busy right now. Like uh, I'll, I'll look into some like online guides or I'll figure it out. Um, and it just didn't. And then I would, you know, a few years later, look at the exchanges and they, they all look sketchy. And I was like, I feel like I'm going to get scammed here. So let me like uh, do some due diligence on this and then figure out where to buy from. And then I just don't do it. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, but then of course, later you come back and it's, it look, it feels like you're just interacting with your bank. It's just, it's super easy to buy. And so the, one is that the user experience is getting better over time. Sorry, when, the user experience when you're into an exchange uh, or user experience of actually using a wallet. I would say both. So for example, okay. I, I've been highlighting, um, I just had like a, this podcast I did, I highlighted this company called Nunchuck. Um, so it's like a software wallet. And then there's, there's this new product called a tap signer. It's an NFC card. That's a Bitcoin wallet. And so like you, on Nunchuck, you can just hold funds there. And if you want more security, if you don't want it to be in a hot wallet, you can use this like $30 NFC card as your wallet. 
and you just you tap into your phone in a similar way that you tap like a you know a credit card to pay, and that's what signed the transaction. And so that basically makes it so that some degree of cold storage is one cheaper and less intimidating than like uh, basically a more complicated electronic device, for example. Um, I think the and you know recently, for example, it's been announced that that um, you know Block Inc is coming out with their own hardware. Um, device and their own kind of mechanism for how to make that more Apple-like, more easy to use. We're actually holding self-custody, but it's not like um, you don't have to be a techie to do it. So one is that the actual user experience of directly interacting with Bitcoin, whether it's Bitcoin, Lightning, um, other types of open source stuff on top of it, that generally gravitates towards easier. And I think right now we're still kind of in this environment, like the like the internet before the browser was invented or the internet when like the first browsers were being invented. Uh, that's kind of the user experience that we're at right now in this ecosystem. And I think when you look out 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I think we still have a lot of low-hanging fruit in order to have a much, much better um, UX. And, you know, there are people today that don't know how to write like checkbooks, right? They don't know how to, they don't know how to write a check. And it seems complicated and weird. Like how, They're like, wait a second, how does a wire transfer work? Or how, they don't really know what's going under the hood of the dollar system. Um, there are certain things they had to learn in certain eras that seem complicated today, like like how do checks work and things like that, that were just, were just common knowledge back then because that's the technology that they grew up with. I think in a, in a world where, you know, there are people that are like young teenagers right now that never existed in a world where Bitcoin didn't exist, right? And so what happens when they're 30? Um, and so I think that some of these things that seem a little bit complicated now become second nature, kind of like a checkbook, especially when you combine that with the ever improving UX of the space in say these five-year increments when we look at it. So I think that's that's one answer. And then two, just due to some of the scalability limitations or due to convenience, I do still think you'll see a lot of people using custodial services. Um, but right now in this earlier environment, basically Having a tech background helps you understand which of these technologies has likes to them, which don't, at least on a probability basis. And then two, um, there's so much new kind of promises and hype and things that get rug pulled over and over again. Um, that's that's like a an era of the system. It's kind of like how when it became more popular to invest in equities, you started to get those boiler room penny stock dumping yep. operations. And it took you don't really see them as much anymore because it takes time for both regulators and even putting regulators aside to catch up with it. The consumer public takes time to realize, no, that's a scam. That's a scam. That's a scam. I'm not going to fall for that anymore. And so the public gets more hardened against types of things. And I think crypto for the past 10 years or so has, has existed in this window or, you know, trusting an exchange, trusting the sketchy offshore thing. It's been in this like regulatory limbo, um, big money to be made, that's an environment where these like rug pulls and schemes are going to happen on a pretty high basis. But over time, people get more, like they understand how to identify scams in the industry better. They understand how to prioritize safety better. They get rug pulled once and then they vow like never again. Sometimes they even go too hard in the other direction. They're like, I'm never going to, I'm going to be like super hardcore now because they got rug pulled by Mel Gox or something, right? Yeah. You have people like again. that. But so people learn their lesson or they learn from people who learn lessons. And so eventually this kind of wave of fraud dies down and you start to get serious entities that are saying, okay, we're going to custodian your Bitcoin. We're going to make your Bitcoin easier to use. We're regulated. We're audited. We do proof of reserve, whatever the case may be. 
Um, and should you not want to trust us, pull your money out, right? So only leave the money with us that you maybe want to spend and have easy access to. And if you want to go into cold storage, um, you know, it's a little bit of a learning curve, like writing a checkbook. Um, but it's not, it's not rocket science when you have kind of, you know, these things today. So now I want to talk about the bridge between the fiat world and Bitcoin, not just crypto. I mean, if we had, you know, an infinite amount of time, we did go Bitcoin versus other crypto. But do you think it will be a gentle transition of, yeah, Bitcoin will just go up in value and people will just start to adopt it? Or do you, do you think that it will have to be a violent break uh, where the traditional financial system cuts off the rails? I mean, you saw JP Morgan saying, You're, we're not doing any business with crypto at all. If you want to do a crypto on up choose another bank. And I, I think JP Morgan is you know, the biggest bank in the world, you know, if not one of the biggest. Uh, what if all other you know, banks start start doing that? And then there's the government. Um, you know, Gary Gensler and the SEC is getting a lot more in, involved. I mean, do you think that crypto will become a threat to fiat? And will, will fiat let itself be uh, taken over by crypto? Or will it fight back? And you know, how, how dramatic and, and perhaps you know, violent um, uh, will, will that be? So I think it's be a blend of those scenarios where it happened gradually over time, but it's not smooth. It's, gra- it's gradual, but violent in the sense that there's there's punctuated periods. It's not like one fell swoop is all cut off now. It's like there's various attempts at pushback. And an example is, you know, at, when you see a, a developing country get dollarized, there are various pushbacks. They say, okay, well, it's, it's you know, like we're going to have more capital controls to make it hard to get dollars. You might, in extreme cases, they might make it illegal to own dollars, although usually that's not a jurisdiction you want to be in. But basically they'll add various frictions um, to make it hard to get dollars. And you, you actually see that... It, in some extent in the crypto world. So for example, Argentina, like in 2022, is like, okay, banks have all these new limitations on dealing with crypto. And then they say, like uh, in 2023, is you also fintech, so payment apps, they also have more restrictions on dealing with crypto. And of course, the reasons are like money laundering and you know financial stability and stuff. But really what they really mean is that they want to slow the floodgates out of the Argentine peso in various ways. And so they want to keep people in the system getting diluted. Um, and in Nigeria's case, they cut off their banks from crypto exchanges, and they launched the one of the earliest central bank digital currencies, the e-Naira. Um, and yet the outcome of that was that the e-Naira has very low adoption, and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies like stablecoins have higher adoption than their central bank digital currency. And Nigeria is one of the highest crypto adoption countries in the world, despite the fact that their banks don't you know, lead to it. Um, and that's from a government decree that, that blocks that from happening. And it's because when things get problematic enough or when knowledge spreads enough through society, they just start overriding that type of thing. So Argentinas, they want stable coins. They're going to find a way to get stable coins um, almost no matter how hard the government blocks them from doing it, unless you get all out like China, North Korea type of um, censorship. So any, in any sort of like semi-free environment, when the when the centralized ledger is just not working well enough and people want something else, um, they can add frictions, but it's it's like this messy, long-term, gradual adoption. And right now, it's not just Bitcoin, it's stablecoins too, because stablecoins are a technology that allow dollars to penetrate these markets more readily than they otherwise you know, would before this technology existed, right? So now, um, you know, on your phone, there's ways to get stablecoins and there's ways to... to hold dollars in a way that were not available before. Um, so when it comes to developing developed countries like United States, Europe, and places like that, I see it generally going in a, in a somewhat similar direction where 
as long as their own monetary environment is semi-workable, they can keep the rails on the cart for you know relatively well. But as soon as they run into their own kind of fiscal spiral, whatever the case may be in this kind of long-term scenario, um, more and more people want to go to the exits and their ability to control all those exits, their ability to control the narrative around why you shouldn't even be seeking the exits. You know, right. like only bad people are seeking the exits. Don't don't seek the exits. Um, um, that gets harder and harder to enforce as as the system gets worse and worse. Um, so I, I do think that there will be ongoing pushbacks. We've already seen ongoing, you know, in develop, develop, developing countries in particular have pushed back against these kind of like crypto from moving too quickly into their countries, especially things like stable coins. Um, and I think we'll see similar in developed countries. But I think also it's a country by country basis. So it's kind of a game theory, like um, one country wants to push it back. Whereas maybe another country kind of sees the light at the end of the tunnel and they say, look, instead of going through this inevitable battle, we're going to we're going to make our hub, our country's going to be a hub for this. We're going to be like, OK, we're going to embrace it. Come to us, have your business here. And we're going to be the Switzerland of crypto, right, or of Bitcoin or of you know whatever the case may be. And that's another strategy that some countries can and in some cases already are moving on. And so I think that the. It's not going to be a smooth world when you have monetary transitions, um, especially if you also have energy problems during this time, which I expect to probably be the case. So the combination of money and energy is some of the most important inputs to an economy. And if those are either changing rapidly or experiencing turbulence, um, those are not easy environments. So no, I don't I don't expect it to be smooth. Final quick question. It's It's a tough one. In the financial world that you envision that is much better, you know, you, you see it than the current world, what role would a stablecoin play such as Tether, which has very, very low levels of disclosures of what it's owned and what it's backed by? And I mean, to me, any regulated U- U.S. bank or J.P. Morgan or any U.S. regulated bank, I have much more faith in their sort of they, they own what they own than uh, such as Tether. I'm curious if you would agree with me. And uh, also, you know, I mean, this this whole ethos you've talked about, a hard money, you can't fake currency. It's it's sort of you know, almost immoral to sort of just conjure money out of the thin air. I mean, what's what's going on with Tether? So stable coins in general, I view as a transitional technology, which is basically they're an extension of the dollar system right now. So it's a way for the dollar. It's because there is, even as we talk about BRICS nations or de-dollarization and stuff like that, the, the people in those countries, even if certain top-down leaders want to de-dollarize, the dollar still has the strongest network effect among fiat currencies among most public. And so when you have like a black market or a street market in certain countries, it's usually the dollar that people want. And stable coins are another way for them to get access to dollars or indirectly things like treasuries. Um, and so I view stable coins as that kind of intermediate phase. And the problem is that historically... And to, and your prior points, regulators have been very reticent to either bank, you know, stablecoin provider or things like that. And so almost by necessity, you see a lot of these going offshore, becoming more opaque. And then you, they get blamed for being offshore and opaque, but it's like, well, they they weren't allowed to go the onshore transparent route, especially in the beginning, right? So I think that's the the the, the path dependence here is a play between new technologies, um, bringing services to people while existing um either governments or just banking kind of closed environments. They don't want disruption, right? So they kind of have their walled garden and you have this kind of tethers of the new Euro dollars, right? It's, you know, the Euro dollars market's always been one of those opaque, um, at least semi-opaque markets and tethers are the the most recent version of them. So they are 
um, attested to by an auditing firm. Um, they have withstood very large bank runs. Um, they don't have the same transparency you'd get with, say, some of these like onshore ones. Um, and I think basically that's mostly at the current time a regulatory issue is mostly a the fact that you have 160 different fiat currencies in the world. A lot of them are failing. People want dollars. Um, Tether is serving a need there for people, right? There's there's really two major stablecoin uses. One is like generally large wealthy players in like DeFi and offshore exchanges using it as their trading unit of account. Um, and then you have the Argentina, Lebanon, you know, Turkey, people in inflationary regimes that want dollars and that are tech savvy. And they say, well, we need stable coins to get dollars. Um, and so I view this as just like a, a, a mix of the where fiat currency find itself today, not just, not just the US, but especially globally, um, the demand for dollars, the reticence of regulators to work with this new technology, um, the desire for sanctions, but also desired from sanctioned countries to get dollars. Um, this is basically a big mix that's happening right now. And I view that as a, it's, it's partially tied to Bitcoin in the sense that this technology opens borders, not just for Bitcoin, but also things like stable coins. So there's, there's obviously some interplay there. Um, but I generally view this, this state can exist for as long as the dollar is relatively stable. If we get to a, a phase in the future where the dollar has a similar type of problem where the emerging markets face today, or even like Japan's facing today, if we, if we kind of go farther down the line, more debts, more deficits, more kind of unrecoverable fiscal position, um, the question is what's above the dollar, right? And so I think that's that's why I ultimately view stable coins as an important market at the current time, but one that is, it's, it's all it really is is a new way of moving around dollars and a new way of holding dollars. Basically, it 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 tokenizes a bank account or tokenizes a treasury and makes it available for more people. And then that obviously opens up all sorts of frictions. Mm. Well, Lynn, that's this is absolutely fascinating uh, hearing your views and your, your thinking about the global monetary order and, and how it can change. Uh, the book, I'll put it up again, Broken Money, uh, Why Our Financial System is Failing Us and How We Can Make It Better. And of course, uh, you're on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact and people can find uh, uh, your, your research at lynnalden.com. Uh, by the way, TLT, you know, long-term treasury bonds are down 2% today. So if that continues, you know, maybe the, this world you envision could be pretty close. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much again, and thank you ever for watching. Thank you for having me. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.